listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Boards of pharmacy have the power to revoke or suspend a pharmacist's license, impose fines, or take other disciplinary action if they violate state laws or regulations. By maintaining a positive relationship with your respective boards of pharmacy, pharmacy professionals can stay up to date changes in regulations, receive guidance on complex issues, and ensure that they are delivering safe and effective care to their patients. Today's podcast is all about demystifying boards of pharmacy and how to work best with them. We'd like to welcome Lucas Morgan from Friar and Levitt to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Gavel and Pestle, the podcast that explores the intersection of law and pharmacy. As pharmacy professionals, we know that the complexities of the pharmaceutical industry, policies, safety, and law are crucial to the delivery of healthcare. That's why we're here to dive deep into the legal side of pharmacy, discussing topics that are important to our profession. Join us as we speak with experts in the field and explore the latest news, trends, and developments that impact the world of pharmacy. From drug regulations to intellectual property, from liability issues to patient safety, we'll cover it all. Whether you're a pharmacist, a pharmacy technician, or a pharmacy student, this podcast is for you. So sit back, grab your gavel and pestle, and get ready to dive deep into the fascinating world of pharmacy law. This is Gavel and Pestle, the podcast about the fusion of law and pharmacy. Hey, how how do you work as a clinical pharmacist, as a licensed pharmacist, as a long-term care specialty community pharmacy? How do you work with your boards of pharmacy? Does that make you cringe when you hear the statement board of pharmacy? You know, I am not a pharmacist. I'm not a pharmacy owner. I don't know what the board of pharmacy sometimes even does. I know a little bit from the NAPLEX and understanding what NAPLEX is and licensing within a state, but we're gonna be talking about demystifying the state boards of pharmacy today. And I met the leader of this organization back at Armada Health 2015, which is now called Assembia. Um, Jonathan Levitt is just a pioneer in law fused with pharmacy and pharmacy practice and the business of pharmacy. And we are um, we are so excited to have people that we can reach out to. It's all about your network. We talked about networks. Lucas Morgan is here today from Friar and Levitt. Um, Lucas, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Todd. Happy to be here. So you and I have talked before and prepped for this because this to me is a complex subject. Um, and that is, you know, understanding your boards of pharmacy, understanding how to work with them. Before we get started though, I want listeners to understand your role with Fire and Levitt and then also your tie into the business of pharmacy. Um, you have been in um, litigation um, for a while, you've understood the insurance realm. Um, you handle complex disputes involving PBMs. We love that. We got to have you back on the PBM Reform Podcast at some point. But tell us a little bit about your background. Sure. Thanks so much, Todd. And I really appreciate the the things you said about Friar Levitt. And um, as far as the litigation background goes, as you mentioned, do a lot of work in the PBM space, handling disputes on behalf of providers. 
but shifting more in focus on the board of pharmacy realm. I would describe that as kind of being a quasi litigation setting, meaning that you see some components of traditional court litigation in federal and state court, but also some kind of expedited or um, streamlined proceedings. Because when you're working with a board of pharmacy, one of the things that people often overlook is that you're dealing with an administrative agency that's run by the federal or state government as opposed to a private party. Um, and I've been working in that realm for, it's coming up on 10 years, uh, is not off in the, the distant future. Um, and I started working in that space because of working with so many pharmacy providers in the PBM space and starting to learn that they were also experiencing issues or had questions arising as it relates to dealing with their board of pharmacies. So what is really interesting about the timing of this podcast is there's a series out right now that's sponsored by Friar and Lovett, uh, Navigating State Boards of Pharmacy Insights and Strategies for Pharmacies and Pharmacists. We're kind of in the middle of it. You've already gone through common actions taken by boards of pharmacy. Let's start there. What are the common actions that are happening with boards of pharmacy and the relationship with um, pharmacies? And is this kind of a blanket where they deal with all pharmacies the same way or are long-term care specialty community chain is a little bit different depending on the state? That is. Perfect question. I would say that generally speaking, these particular actions that I'm pointing out are generally applicable trends that I see from state to state in some form or another. Um, now, in the webinar series, I point to specific states just to provide concrete examples of this, but I have found that these tend to be generally applicable regardless of the pharmacy type. So, I think of my community pharmacy right here in Brownsville, Pennsylvania, and I know that they have a policy and procedures manual that kind of goes through standard things for accidents or spills or whatever comes into play. Is that the starting point to insulate ourselves as um, the business of pharmacy, pharmacy owners? Does it start with our policy and procedures? I think that's one very good starting point. And I would actually, if I'm going to try to go back even maybe a step further, I would say it's generally approaching Board of Pharmacy with the idea of being proactive and getting out in front of everything um, and thinking about almost depending where you are. Let's say you've you've owned and operated a pharmacy for two or three years, but you aren't as conversant as you think you perhaps should be with Board of Pharmacy rules and regulations starting today, you know, within reason. Assume you're opening the pharmacy a week from now and start looking at the Board of Pharmacy rules and regulations from that perspective. What all would I need to do or want to do if I were going to open a pharmacy a week from now and be in complete compliance with my board's rules and regulations? And, and the reason I say that is because I think many or some of the trends that I've observed, which is what led me to putting together with, with my firm this webinar series, is I started to, to detect a lot of trends where pharmacies were getting, and I hate to use the word because it sounds so harsh, discipline, but that is what it is considered from a statutory standpoint for what 
I had perceived as being innocent oversights, meaning there was no bad faith involved. No one was trying to knowingly skirt the rules or, or find loopholes in the rules. These were things that pharmacies or pharmacists just were not aware of. And I think those are um, situations where you just stop and you go, wow, this really could have been prevented in many different ways. But the starting point is knowing in the first instance that there's even an obligation. So if I were going to give you a, a good example of that, um, and this is something that I hold out as being a common action, it's some version of a failure to operate the business within a given time frame. Um, I'm going to use Texas as an example because I think they articulate this very well in their Board of Pharmacy rules and regulations. This can arise in two contexts. One is from the date that you receive your pharmacy license in the state of Texas, you have six months to become operational. And there's definitions for this term. And the idea is the Board of Pharmacy in Texas wants to know that when they grant you that license, which is a privilege, that within six months or less, you are going to be doing meaningful, substantive pharmacy business. The other scenario where this arises, if for some reason there is a need to temporarily close the pharmacy, let's say um, there was a fire at the pharmacy and it caused some harm and you're working on, on renovating the pharmacy to address that damage, and you close down and you, you think that's going to be a two-week period of time. Well, if it extends beyond 30 days, you can also get into trouble for ceasing to engage in the business of pharmacy for a period of 30 days once you had already opened. So those are examples of something I see as common actions, which in some instances, uh, pharmacies or pharmacists are either not aware of this obligation or I, the other scenario I see sometimes is thinking you're going to get it under control or you're you're going to get open within that period, but before you know it, six months has come and gone and you're just, oh, it's too late now. Do you see some states being more difficult to operate within than other states? I don't think that the states themselves in terms of the boards or the board members are necessarily more difficult. I believe that some states have rules and regulations that are more detailed and thus perhaps a little more onerous to understand and comprehend. Um, and, and so that might make it a little more difficult, but I don't think it's because of a, a reputation of being more adversarial or hostile mm -hmm. towards pharmacies or pharmacy owners. So I really like in your webinar where you start breaking things down into sections. And one of the interesting points was the significance of effective communications with state boards of pharmacy. This sounds like a very simple um, point, but in essence, it probably isn't. So what does that mean? If I'm a pharmacy owner, how can I be an effective communicator with my with my board of pharmacy? There's a couple of important points here, and, and uh, I think this kind of goes to that point. I've not observed boards ever being adversarial or, or difficult with pharmacies and pharmacies, pharmacy owners. In fact, I've observed quite the opposite. I have found that boards of pharmacies want to interact with the licensees in their states 
They want to hear from them. They want to communicate with them. And when they do, they're responsive. Pretty much every state has some way, shape, or form to communicate with them. And in fact, in many cases, they have multiple ways uh, to do this. So the first point that I would say is, when in doubt, communicate with the Board of Pharmacy. If, if you're not sure if you need to do something, ask the Board of Pharmacy. If you're not sure if you know something's permissible or not permissible, ask the Board of Pharmacy. Another thing is, I, I kind of have the motto of, when in doubt, report it to the pharmacy. <laughs> I, ad I adhere to this notion that you're never going to get in trouble for reporting something you don't need to report, but you will get in trouble for not reporting something that is reportable under the Board of Pharmacy's rules and regulations. Now, a lot of people will push back on me and say, well, Lucas, if I, if I report a disciplinary action, for example, aren't I going to get in trouble for that disciplinary action? And this can arise where you're licensed in more than one state. So let's just say Pennsylvania, New Jersey, two bordering states, you're licensed in both. Pretty much every state has an obligation that if you're disciplined in one state where you're licensed, you need to report it to another state where you're licensed. And they'll say, well, if I report that, aren't they going to discipline me based on that report? And the answer is yes, they might. But if you don't report it, you will also be disciplined for failing to report it. So it's two separate, you know, potential issues. One is the just objective failure to report. And the second might be um, for the underlying issue that arose in the other state. Now, that is not always the case. But the way to get out in front of that is with communication and making that report. And by the way, if you do that in a proactive manner, then you're controlling the narrative of that. And you're able to present that to the Board of Pharmacy, I would say, in the most accurate manner, but also perhaps in a more favorable manner, in more favorable narrative. If you were to average, I know this is a hard question, but I'm going to pitch it to you anyway. You've been in this for a long time, so I know you can handle it. Um, and I'm curious. So what are like the top three issues that you see coming up with pharmacies throughout the country that you're just like, you know, it's like a, um, a, a Simpsons moment when you smack your head on your hand and you're like, Oh, like, why, why, why did they get in trouble for that? Like, what is, what are common themes that are constantly coming up that pharmacists or pharmacies should be aware of? And they're just not, are they, or it just slips or What's what's one of the more common themes where the Board of Pharmacy comes up with disciplinary action? Well, I would go back to that failure to operate scenario. I think that's a consistent um, situation that you see arise throughout the country in some way, shape, or form. But to add another component to that, it, it goes back to what I just described, and that it's that failure to report. Now, it's not always discipline, but I would say a general dolt moment, to use your term from The Simpsons, <laughs> um, which I appreciate, is... Failure to report basic changes. Um, I would say, generally speaking, pretty much every change that occurs at a pharmacy needs to be reported to the Board of Pharmacy, even some of the more basic stuff. So, and, and this goes back to my idea of, when in doubt, report it anyway. Let's say you make a small modification to your, your hours, 
for a short period of time because of uh, personal matters. You're still going to be full time, but instead of closing at five o'clock, you've decided to close at 430 because you need that half hour to start picking up your kids from school. Report it. Now, I can't tell you off the top of my head whether all 50 states require that to be reported, but I can tell you this, if you don't have to report it, you will not get in trouble. But if you do have to report it and you don't, you could have just caused an issue. And, and the thing I always, I, I had led, I think, by saying, I, I don't like using the word discipline because it sounds so harsh, but because you're dealing with an administrative agency and when they take action against a licensee, even on some of these more innocuous issues, it goes down as discipline, which is nine times out of 10, publicly available and reportable information. So I'm thinking of a discussion that took place at the American Pharmacists Association. Uh, we were talking, there's a lot of chatter about um, burnout and how pharmacists throughout the nation is especially in our chain um, environments are becoming burnout based on the immense amount of work that they're doing that the pandemic pressed down on, which was testing and then treating um, for, you know, fa for vaccinations. And on top of that, all of the um, influx of activity that was happening at a pharmacy in the form of, of prescription management and putting it through normal workflow. So when we think of a current event, has, has this burnout issue and staffing issue, has Friar and, Love, Friar and Lovett seen a board of pharmacy uh, disciplinary rise in what's happening because of, of the pandemic and the outcome and, and now workflows, workflow issues? I mean, work, work staffing issues, really. I think the answer is absolutely yes. And it's because of that combination of, I would say, burnout combined with a lack of available qualified staff to fill crucial positions, especially that of supervising pharmacist or uh, pharmacist in charge. And, and again, it's not because the boards of pharmacy are going around looking for, for these issues. I mean, in one sense, they are, but in the other sense, they're really just kind of doing their job to protect the, the well-being of the residents of their respective states. And they detect gaps in time where there hasn't been adequate staff in place. And so two things, you know, we're seeing right now that you said burnout and also just a lack of qualified individuals to fill these crucial positions. So when you combine those two things, it's um, an environment that's ripe for these types of issues to arise, which is, you know, an example might be a pharmacist in charge unexpectedly quits a, a small pharmacy based on burnout. And then the pharmacy is all of a sudden in the position of not having a pharmacist in charge. And they turn around and they frantically look to hire a new pharmacist in charge, but they're just not able to find anyone that fits the bill. Now, the good news is, most board of pharmacy rules and regulations account for this type of scenario. But what do they ask for in return? Communication. Mm -hmm. Let us know. Tell us you're having this problem. Um, Pennsylvania is an example of that off the top of my head. So my last question is about credentialing. And that is, 
tell tell us a little bit about how important that is in keeping in you know the good graces of your board of pharmacy where does credentialing come in i can imagine that it's when you're opening up a new pharmacy that's kind of like a given i understand that but what about the ongoing pharmacies that are out there what is it about credentialing that we have to keep up on very important and you know as a threshold matter you want to be accurate <clears throat> but it, it goes back to that notion of regular communication with your board of pharmacy the credentialing process even though it's more formalistic um, in a mandatory requirement it's still another way of communicating and so providing updates through your credentialing that reflect accurate and up-to-date information is really important but the other thing I would say is, as it relates to re-credentialing, but more so re-credentialing, you know that's coming. And that's an example where you really want to be sure that you are also maintaining re regular communication with the board in that interim period. Because I've seen, and, and when I say all of this, these are generally applicable principles that I've observed. Every state has nuances and variations, so that's an important thing to keep in mind. But I've seen two general versions of recredentialing. One is, or uh, my apologies, two versions of reporting obligations. One is, you don't have to affirmatively report it to us when it happens. We just expect that you will tell us during your recredentialing. Others will say, you need to report something. For example, let's say it's, um, a, a sister state disciplinary action. You need to report it within 10 days of the time that you became aware of the disciplinary action or 30 days. If you don't do that it, because you're not aware of that or you forgot about it, you're going to have to report it at the time of recredentialing. And so if you miss that mark and you're now beyond that time frame, it's going to be reported in, in the recredentialing. And that could be the means by which the Board of Pharmacy learns that it wasn't reported earlier when it should have been. Lucas, this has been great. I have one final question, and that is, when I think of the policy and procedures manual that's there to protect our pharmacists and pharmacies and operations, how often are you recommending to um, pharmacists, um, PICs, pharmacy owners, to update that um, that portfolio or that uh, binder? I'm going to recommend that because I like to be practical in making recommendations, especially when I'm thinking of smaller um, independent pharmacies. I understand that oftentimes you, you're a pharmacist and a business owner and you're right. wearing a lot of hats, but I would say at minimum on a monthly basis. Now, I would go so far as to say, if you can do it, try to have a weekly check-in where you're reviewing it because these things are changing very quickly. Um, so, you know, you, you like one recommendation might be to set some time in your weekly calendar for a week of, or, or for an hour's worth of review of your policies and procedures to see if there's been any new updates in your state or the states in which you're licensed. So you, weekly if you can do it, but at a minimum on a monthly basis. The webinar series is called Navigating State Boards of Pharmacy Insights and Strategies for Pharmacies and Pharmacists um, by uh, Fryer and Levitt. It's a three-part series. Um, this podcast probably came out in the middle of it, but this has been um, wonderful to talk with you, uh, Lucas. 
very much want to have you back. We have a podcast that we'd like to you to become a bigger part of. I'd love to, to bring you back for PBM reform discussion and then more about fusing um, law and pharmacy together. I think this is an important subject. So this meant a lot to our, our organization, our publication. We want to thank uh, Friar and Lovett and you, Lucas, for, for being here with us today. Thanks so much, Todd. Would ha be happy to be back, and this meant a lot to us as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.